Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who has also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. This current relationship and fellowship, this interaction we have as with the spirit and with God is really just a foretaste of what we will have in eternity. Because we continue right now in this relationship with God where there's this interruption of sin. There's, this, there's still this flesh in our lives that, that we struggle with, the sin that we struggle with that causes us to stumble. But this is really just a foretaste of the relationship we have with God now is really just a foretaste of what we will have in eternity when we ultimately are glorified and our flesh is done away with the sinfulness of our flesh is done away with and we won't struggle with sin anymore we will walk in an unpolluted way have unpolluted fellowship with god and the spirit is our pledge the spirit is our guarantee of what will happen to us in the future sanctification Sanctification, this this ongoing process of growing us in our fellowship and in our relationship and in, with God and in our Christ-likeness. So sanctification, there's really two parts to it. There's the immediate sanctification, what we call positional sanctification, that takes place in the life of us as followers of Christ when we come to know Him. Your life is sanctified. It is set apart. And your purpose as a follower of Christ is 100% to serve and glorify Him with everything you do. That's what positional sanctification is. You are immediately moved into fellowship with God in part of the body of Christ. So that's what we talk about when we talk about immediate sanctification but we also talk about the progress of ongoing sanctification. Ongoing sanctification. So it starts really with the sealing of the Holy Spirit. The the Holy Spirit is the one who's primarily involved here. So you look at Philippians, right? Paul talks to the Philippians, um, Philippians 1.6, he says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. And he also tells them to work out their salvation to with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. So when we talk about the progressive sanctification, the Holy Spirit is the one doing the work, but as followers of Christ, we're called to pursue that with 100% of our effort. It isn't something where you just sit back and say, okay, this is the work of the Holy Spirit, so I'm just going to do nothing, and I'm just going to lay back. No, really, it's interesting, right? How often does God call us to take place, to be a part of the sovereign work that he is doing? It's a pretty consistent pattern. Who builds the church? Christ builds the church. But Christ also calls us to go out and make disciples, and he gives us the privilege of being a part of the work that God's doing in history. So we see this happen in a lot of ways, and it happens with your sanctification as well. This is God's will for your life. Your sanctification, the Holy Spirit is going to accomplish it. It is His work. He gets the glory, and it's His power that we're 100% dependent upon. But as Paul told the Philippians, look, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, with passion, with deep effort with everything you've got because this is God's will for your life and this is the Spirit's work inside of you. Remember too that the Spirit primarily does this through the teaching of His Word, through the work 
of his word. You look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We brought this verse, this passage up earlier. But the Spirit is the one who teaches us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. That the importance of knowledge comes out right there. The one of the things that Paul emphasizes in this passage is that a primary purpose that the Holy Spirit has been given to you is so that you can know the things of God, so that you can be taught the things of truth. The Spirit has been given to us so that we can freely know the things given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Should we be surprised when the world rejects the things of God? We should be surprised if they don't, right? It's the opposite. I mean, when the world says, hey, Christians, you're foolish. The things of God, you follow this ancient book, it's foolish. The things in this ancient book are foolish. That shouldn't surprise us because God tells us right here in his word that a natural man, when he says a natural man, that is somebody who has not been regenerated, somebody who has not been born again. Remember Jesus and Nicodemus and that whole conversation. Nicodemus was thinking, well, how can I naturally be born again? That doesn't really make sense, Jesus. And Jesus says, well, no, I'm not talking about natural birth. I'm talking about spiritual birth. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. It's only by the Spirit that you can be taught the things of God. And so don't get frustrated when in your evangelism, when you're talking to family members, you're talking to friends, they just don't get it. Keep talking to them. As importantly as keeping talking to them, keep praying for them. Because look, aren't things that they can come understand come to understand by any wisdom of the way you present it right like you can't you're not going to be able to walk anybody into salvation apart from the work of the holy spirit like we talked about a second ago god calls us in his grace and i mean it's a glorious thing right he calls us to be a part of the spirit's work so often through evangelism But prayer, this is why prayer is so important, because they are only spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That last verse should really blow your mind. Because what he's saying is, when he says, who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? What Paul's doing there is really showing us how great the Spirit of God is. That when we talk about the Spirit, who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, we are talking about infinite wisdom here. And we are talking about the wisdom that spoke the universe into being. Space, black holes, galaxies, like, I don't know how to say it. Somebody laughed at me last time I tried. The Mariana Trench. It's like 30,000 feet deep, like all the crazy stuff down there, our bodies, like all these just ridiculous things when you stop to talk about it in terms of complexity and amazement. Like God, this spirit is so wise and powerful. He speaks these things into being and he sustains them. That's what Paul's setting you up to think about in the first part of verse 16 here. He's setting you up if you want to stop and slow down. You read it so fast, right? You don't think about it. But that's what the first half of verse 16 is doing, is setting you up to be like, wow, this spirit is just 
beyond understanding, amazing. And then the second part of verse 16 is where Paul's saying, okay, this spirit is the one that dwells within you. This is the one that you have 24-7 access to for eternity. We have the mind of Christ. There's really not enough you can say about that to capture how remarkable it is that you have the mind of Christ. What more could you really want? This is the 24-7 access to the teacher that leads you in sanctification. And what's remarkable is that this learning, this growth, goes on for eternity. You can't exhaust it. My mind doesn't really understand that because I feel like most things, given eternity, I could probably come to learn most about it. But God, we're going to continue to learn about him and grow in him for eternity. Your mind just really can't compute that. And we've kind of been hopping around here. But the regeneration and renewing. We talked about the regeneration and renewing, right? I'm going to read it again. Titus 3, 5 and 6. Really such an important passage. How does this salvation happen? Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Don't you like that part? That's pretty great. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Reminds me so much of that Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 3 are just about how we are spiritually dead. And then the first two words of verse 4, but God. Like then you're spiritually dead and hopeless. You need to be regenerated. And God steps in in his love and does that. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but God, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. It's an amazing thing. And as we've talked about, as I mentioned last time, He does this primarily through his word. And as we talked about already this morning, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to get into that when we talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, here we go. Um, I mentioned this last time, but it's worth revisiting because it's a controversial topic. We already talked about how if you are a follower of Christ, then 100% of the time you have the Holy Spirit. And so what is this filling of the Holy Spirit? It's almost like a limitation in our English language, kind of, where we just can't really think of the right words for it. Because uh, as I mentioned last time, that we see this filling of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 17 to 19, where Paul says, and do not, or, so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of Lord, the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. So This filling of the Holy Spirit, this Greek word, is the exact same word that you would use to talk about the filling of a sail with wind, with air. The the power that drives, controls, and directs a ship. And he's contrasting that with being drunk with wine. When you are intoxicated, you are losing uh, your own ability to control yourself, to control your mind, even at times your own physical physical body. So that is absolutely, as Paul says, not what you want to do. You don't want your faculties to be under the control and influence of alcohol. Instead, your faculties, your mind, should be under the control and the influence of the Holy Spirit. 
be filled, be powered, be driven, directed by the Spirit of God. Like we talked about last week, and and actually as we were going through Colossians, you probably remember Dusty on several occasions reminding us that Paul kind of wrote Ephesians and Colossians like side by side while he was in prison. And so there's just a lot of parallel passages and parallel thoughts. In Colossians 3.16, he says, "Let let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so parallel passages here, what he does in Ephesians, where he says, be filled by the, with the Spirit, he switches out that thought in Colossians 3 with let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Like I mentioned last time, whose word is this? Peter tells us that the Old Testament writers didn't just write whatever they wanted, that the writers of Scripture didn't just write whatever they wanted. They didn't just come up with their own ideas. This isn't a product of their imagination. But they wrote as they were moved by the Spirit. When we talk about the Spirit or the Word of God, is God breathed? In the Greek, there's a lot of connections linguistically with that God breathed in the spirit, with breath and spirit. This, the the spirit that dwells within us, the word of Christ is the spirit's word. So it's no wonder that the, the person who works within us through this sanctifying process is going to primarily use the word that he has given us. It's not the only thing he uses. He uses many things. But you cannot grow spiritually apart from the word of God. It's impossible. You can't do it. If you're not daily taking in the things of God, meditating on it, digesting it, letting it become a part of your life, being filled with the spirit through the word, Your sanctification is stunning. Your sanctification is stunning. That is the filling of the Spirit. So with that, let's just do some quick review on the Trinity. As we've gone through fundamentals here, we're in Lesson 7. We've talked about the Holy Spirit. We've now talked about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've talked about three separate people throughout history there's been incorrect teaching that you've probably heard just there's been so many variations of it either jesus isn't god jesus was just man just a just a teacher or there's even modalism which was like sometimes it's one god one person sometimes he presents himself as the father sometimes he presents himself as the spirit sometimes he presents himself is the Son. But what we've seen as we've gone through the fundamentals course, what we've seen clearly is that there is one single God. There's no question about that. We have verse after verse, Old Testament, New Testament, that clearly teach one single God. Yet, we also see just as clearly throughout Scripture that this one single God exists in three persons. As we've come to this place in fundamentals, we've, we've, we've seen that play out. And just a quick review, when it comes to the Trinity, there's a limitation in our finite minds as to how much we can really come to grasp it, right? And so any kind of, when we're dealing with the infinite God, God has without a doubt given us everything we need to know pertaining to life and godliness. You should never doubt that. If there's something you need in your life to live out the life that God has called you to, I can say with complete confidence and guarantee that the Holy Spirit, God, will give that to you. But does that mean that we perfectly understand everything about God? No, we don't. We have everything we need to live the life he's called us to, 
But as finite people, we don't even perfectly understand this world that he created. What makes us think that we're going to perfectly understand the infinite creator? And as we mentioned a moment ago, this learning and growing and coming to a deeper knowledge of God is something that continues on for eternity. So as we do a review of the Trinity, these definitions have limitations, right? There's only so much you can condense an infinite God into these words. But we talk about the Father here, the one from whom all revelation proceeds, the one who foreknew our salvation and demonstrated his love for us by giving us his Son. We talk about Jesus, God the Son, the incarnate God who gave himself as a sacrifice for sin and now intercedes and mediates between the Father and man. Jesus Christ, 100% flesh on this earth when he came to this earth, born as a baby, infinite God, born as an infant. It's a wild concept. And it's what scripture clearly teaches us. And he gave his life as a sacrifice. God the Spirit indwells the believer and works to sanctify the believer through the illumination, not elimination, illumination of the word of God. So how do we apply these things? Well, the first step for fellowship with God is salvation. You look at Ephesians chapter 2. I brought it up a few times, but Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he goes on there to talk about just the sanctification. So the question is, when you look at Ephesians chapter 2, where are you in this timeline? If you're still in verses 1 to 3, an enemy of God, a child of wrath, you have not come to a place of really recognizing your sinfulness, your need to repent of that sinfulness, and trust in Jesus Christ as the sacrifice for that sinfulness, that's really where all this begins. That's where regeneration begins. And the answer, the application of the teachings of the Trinity to your life is repent, turn from your sinfulness, and accept the sacrifice that God has provided for your sinfulness. Be born again, regenerated, to be raised to walk in a newness of life. For us who are in Christ, the application of the Trinity is pursue the work of the Trinity in your life. This, we, we complicate the idea of God's will so much. You hear about what's God's will for my life? And the way we always talk about it, it seems, is in the context of like, should I move here? Should I take this job? Should I date this person? Should I go to this college? Should I marry this person? Whatever. We talk about the will of God on such grand, complicated levels. Yet, when the Bible talks about the will of God, it's Jesus saying, seek first God's kingdom and righteousness and all these other things will be taken care of. Or it's Paul saying, God's will for your life is your sanctification. And you know what? All these other huge things, the point Jesus is making is, look, yeah, those are important. But pursue God's sanctification the Spirit's sanctification in your life, and these other things fall into place. Here's what we typically do, right? We typically are like, you know, 
God tells us most of what we need to know very clearly. There's certainly, like, you're, if you're trying to decide between two good jobs, sure. That could be complicated, right? But, like, most of what we got to de- have to decide on every day, God has made it very clear. But what we tend to do as people is we're like, you know, I'm not too worried about what God has to say with most of what I need to do on my life. But then this big decision comes up, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, now I really want to know what God has to say. It's like, wait a second, you haven't cared for like 90%. Like, now all of a sudden this big decision comes up, now you really care. It doesn't work that way, right? Instead, what Jesus is saying is like, hey, look, be faithful with the vast majority of life that God has made crystal clear. And there's two things that come into play with like that 1-2% ultra complicated stuff. First of all, when you generally live in wisdom and the will of God, you're generally going to make better decisions, right? Like... That's step one. Two, God is in control of your life. God can direct those decisions, direct the the, uh, trust in his sovereignty, his grace, and his goodness, and do what you think God's called you to do. You know, as believers, pursue his sanctification. Pursue the work of the Trinity in your life. That's what we've been called to do. Let the word of God dwell within you richly. Serve the church, love the church, be a part of the body of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much just for your work in our lives, that you love us so much, that your amazing, infinite goodness can be applied to our lives in such a personal way. And I just pray that our lives would be a reflection of gratitude and worship of you for what you do, what you continue to do, what you have done. Pray as we go into service this morning, you would help us in our hearts and minds to be thinking clearly, to love one another and serve one another, and to think clearly in our worship of you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Board there. Grab this thing. And uh, this week, we continue on with studying the Holy Spirit, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Last, or two weeks ago, when we started off Lesson 7 here, we really focused on the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, The person of the Holy Spirit, and uh, that He is a person, He is God. This week we'll move into the work of the Holy Spirit. But before we do that, let's start with our memory verse for the week. If you know it, we can say it from memory. If you don't, we can read it off. But John fourteen sixteen, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. I can't do memory verses when I'm in front of people. It's way too much pressure and way too nervous for it. So I can never do it in front of people. I have to read it. Um, but it's a, it's a great verse. The whole Trinity involved there. The Son asking the Father for the Spirit, who is called our Helper. Like we talked about, I love that emphasis that the Bible puts on the Spirit is our helper, and I always go back to the fact life is difficult, full of challenges. We live in a sinful, fallen world where we deal with the effects of our own sinfulness, then we deal with the effects of the sinfulness around us, and I need the helper. I'm just so grateful that the Holy Spirit, God, dwells with me all the time because we absolutely need him. So just kind of recap what we looked at last time we were together. Uh, two, two broad buckets of thought. We started with the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not just a different aspect of the Father or a different aspect of the Son or just looking at, the, at, at God from a different angle. The Holy Spirit is his own individual person. He's not an impersonal force. He has all the attributes of a person, and he can be responded to. We have a relationship with the Holy Spirit in the same way that we have a relationship with the Father and the Son. It's a personal relationship, and 
it, it, the Holy Spirit is also active, which is what we will focus heavily on this morning as we go now into the work of the Holy Spirit. But in addition to the first broad bucket that we focused on, the Holy Spirit being an individual person, we also talked very heavily about the second broad bu- bucket of thought. The Holy Spirit is also 100% God. In no way less than the Father, in no way less than the Son. Sometimes we talk about the Holy Spirit less. I think people can often forget about the role of the Holy Spirit, but He is absolutely 100% God, a member of the Trinity. That when we talk about the attributes of God, we see those attributes omniscience, omnipotence, love infinite power. We we see those things active in the role of the Holy Spirit as well. The Bible is very clear as to the deity of the Holy Spirit and him being part of the Godhead. So with that, having talked about the person of the Holy Spirit, having talked about the divinity of the Holy Spirit, this morning our focus will be on the activity of the Holy Spirit, the work in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it really starts at the beginning. It starts as the beginning. The Holy Spirit is creator. It's easy for our minds to think of the Father as creator. I think that's when we think about creation, our mind naturally, instinctively goes to the Father. And then as you learn about the Son, you're kind of surprised when you come across passages like John 1, passages like in Colossians 1 where it talks about the Son, Jesus Christ, as creator and active in creation. You're like, huh, okay, I always thought about the Father. But yes, the Son is creator also. But guess what? As part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit also is creator. In fact, you go to Genesis 1 where it all begins and the spirit is there and active. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Job, in Job 33.4 says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So we talk about the Father being creator and sustainer. It's not just a one-time moment of creation, but an ongoing sustaining of all things. We definitely talk about the Son being creator and the one in whom all things hold together, But the Spirit as well. Job says it's not just the Spirit that gave me life, but it's the all, or it's not only the Spirit that made me, but it's the Almighty that sustains me, that gives me life, that keeps me going, that uh, every breath hangs upon His power. We start at the very beginning with the Spirit as Creator. But the Spirit doesn't just leave us there at creation. Kind of the organization of what we'll talk through this morning is the Spirit's role in the life of the church, but also the lives of us as individual members of the church, really from the creation to glorification. Where we end up, the Spirit's role in our life is beginning to end. And so, We start at creation, but thank God that he doesn't just create us and let us be because we made a terrible mistake. As God's creatures, we were created for the purposes of glorifying him and having fellowship with him for eternity. And remarkably, we chose to rebel against that. We chose to turn away from an infinitely perfect almighty creator. That creates a big problem that we've talked about in this class. And that's why we need salvation. We need to be saved from our sinful state and reconciled from being enemies of God to being his children. The Holy Spirit, along with the Father and the Son, plays an absolutely essential role in that process. So 
after creator, we'll look at the spirit from the standpoint of our salvation. It starts with the conviction of sin. The spirit is the one who convicts us of our sin. He convicts the world of sin, but as followers of Christ, this conviction of sin is an important and completely necessary first step in the process of salvation. There's no coming to salvation until we recognize the need for a Savior, until we recognize the fact that we have willfully chosen to rebel against God and to make ourselves His enemy. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. But He doesn't stop there. If you know Christ as Savior and Lord, it's because the Holy Spirit didn't just convict you of sin, but also opened up your eyes to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. In 1 Corinthians 12.3, Paul says, No one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, he's not talking about just physical utterance of words, right? That, there's no point in talking about that. Obviously, what Paul is talking about is nobody can truly come to recognize and say that Jesus is Lord until the Holy Spirit makes that evident. You can't know the truths of God apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And most importantly, you can't know who God is, who Jesus Christ is, until the Holy Spirit makes that known. Paul also talks about in 1 Corinthians 2 that apart from the Holy Spirit, people can't understand spiritual things. You wonder why there's so much confusion in the world and why people are so lost. Well, it's because they can't be anything else. They can't understand the truths of God. So the Spirit his one role in salvation, one of the critical roles that he plays in salvation is he opens us up to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit, we talk about his role in regeneration. Regeneration. Thinking back again to Ephesians chapter 2. If he, it's just absolutely one of my favorite passages but Ephesians 2 talks about how by nature we are children of wrath enemy of God enemies of God but God causes us to be born again Jesus talks to Nicodemus in John 3 about the need to be born again not by flesh not in a fleshy way a physical way but spiritually the need to be born again spiritually. Romans 6, baptism represents the old you being buried, dead, and raised to walk in a newness of life. That's regeneration. That's the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, 5. God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of re regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That new life is the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a spiritually dead person. Regeneration. Critically, when it comes to our salvation, God doesn't just save us, regenerate us, and leave us alone. But remember what Jesus said about this helper? he was going to ask the Father for, he would be with us forever into eternity. We talk about Christ with us into eternity. It's the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us. Romans 8, 9, the Spirit dwells within believers. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So if you belong to Christ, 
what percentage of you who belong to Christ have the Spirit indwelling? 100%. This is a 100% blanket statement. There's no such thing as a believer not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Possession of the Holy Spirit is not optional, but essential, necessary for each and every believer. Because how did you even come to the place of salvation to start with? It was the work of the Holy Spirit, right? That's We talked about, um, we've been teaching through Matthew on Wednesday night with the youth. And we talked about when Jesus goes and heals the demoniacs. You can think when you start talking about indwelling demons, that gets the minds of the youth running, you know? I mean, there's a lot of questions on on demon possession night, you know? But it's it's great. We can go to the Word of God and say, hey, if you're in Christ, it's the Spirit of God that dwells inside of you. No other spirit can dwell inside of you. Great truth for us to be able to fall back on. We'll talk more about this. So there's a few here we're going to expand on kind of as their own sections. Um, Baptism of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second because there's always a lot of questions there. But 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is where Paul brings up this idea of being baptized in the Spirit. And it's really the only place that Paul brings up this idea of being baptized in the Spirit. So whenever you get to like difficult concepts, controversial concepts, the answer is always, well, let's go to the Word of God and see where Paul actually talks about this interesting idea. And in 1 Corinthians 12, what Paul is talking about is the body of Christ and how his individual Christians, as individual believers, we are made a part of this body of Christ and we're connected together and, and submersed in a sense with this life together. In 1 Corinthians 12, 3, he says, talking about spiritual gifts, therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God, 12, 13, I'm sorry, there's an important one there before the three, um, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. So we're, we'll expand more on this shortly, but that's going to be uh, the key verse there. The reception of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, really connects us together as the body of Christ. Critical to the work of the Holy Spirit when it comes to the life of a believer, is the perseverance of us as followers of Christ. Now, do we persevere on our own power? I mean, I'm very grateful. Looking at the track track record of my life, I am very grateful that my eternal security does not depend on me. Because there wouldn't be much security in that. I would be very nervous about that. But we are sealed by the Holy Spirit in our salvation. Our salvation involves a sealing of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul talks about our salvation really with a lot of eternal concepts and eternal ideas. That we were saved in God's plan from eternity past, but he also talks about eternity future. And you look at Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14, Paul says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. In him you were sealed with the spirit of promise. Have you noticed how often, think about Jesus when he talks about our eternal security, that nobody can pluck us from his hand. Or like Paul, when he's talking to the Philippians, has such confidence in their sanctification that I know that him who began this work in you will complete it. 
Or you think of Paul in Romans chapter 8, the end of Romans chapter 8, where he talks about this process of sanctification in the life of the believer, and he talks about it with such confidence and sureness. Growing up, that confused me a little bit. As a young believer, uh, I was kind of confused. I was like, how does the Bible talk so confidently about our progression in sanctification? But here's the key I was missing, you know? I was I was missing that understanding of the Holy Spirit's role in sealing us and guaranteeing our salvation into eternity. I, I hit that when I was like 18 in college, and I was like, ah, this makes a lot more sense now. This is why Jesus, the New Testament, Paul, can talk so confidently about the security of my salvation. It's because it's not about me. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit who has sealed me. And ultimately, we'll talk a lot sanctification. We're going to expand on this a lot. Um, but when we talk about the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, when Paul talks about the fruits of the Spirit, it's the result of this sanctification. It's called the fruit of the Spirit because it's the result of the Spirit's work in our lives as believers. So moving from creator, then God saves us, expand a little bit here on the baptism part. Because with salvation comes this baptism of the Spirit. And think back to 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, where Paul says, let me just read it again because I think it's really helpful in this understanding. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of the one spirit. Essentially, this baptism of the spirit, which again, here's where Paul talks about it, is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit which again, as Paul has stressed to us, happens for every single believer. If you are a follower of Christ, then the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, dwells within you. And it happens at the moment of conversion. You read through Ephesians, and Ephesians gives a lot of the biography of every single Christian. We see that this indwelling of the Spirit, this baptism of the Spirit, this initiation into the body of Christ happens to every believer and it happens at the moment of salvation. It's not something that we hope happens in the future or it's not something that you become a believer and then you work at your sanctification and then hopefully at some point the baptism of the Spirit comes with it because if that were the case, that would mean we're all on different levels and different stages in our progression as Christians, right? We're all at different stages in our sanctification. So that would mean that some of us were probably at a point where we've been baptized by the Holy Spirit and some of us aren't. But does the Bible ever talk about followers of Christ who are not indwelt baptized in the Holy Spirit? We've read it already a few times this morning how it's extremely exclusive language. If you are in Christ, then the Spirit of Christ dwells within you. 1 Corinthians 12, one of the great passages on spiritual gifts, which is really the context. If you want to know when Paul's talking about the baptism of the Spirit, it, it is really in that context of us all being integrated together all being members of Christ. That's why he talks about, hey, here's some common divisions, Jews, Greeks, um, slaves, free. Here's some common divisions that we have in the first century church, but you're all one in Christ. And the, what's great about 1 Corinthians 12 from both the spiritual gift standpoint, but now this morning as we talk about the baptism of the Spirit, is it's 100%. It's every single follower of Christ. That is the baptism of the Spirit. Let's also focus in, before we go into the sanctification piece, which is where we'll spend a majority of our time, dealing of the Holy Spirit. 
the sealing of the Holy Spirit, which, like I said, the, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, when we talk about the sovereignty of God in our salvation, this is such an important component of that. See, that's really what I was missing. I grew up in a very Arminian type of surrounding. And so that's why when I read, I thought, you know, salvation was largely based on me coming to a place of realizing who God was and placing my faith in him. And it was really about the decisions I had made. And that's why I was so confused on so much of the Bible, because so much of the Bible talks with certainty about our salvation. I was like, man, Paul is way more confident in the sanctification stuff than I am. But I was missing the sovereignty of God. That's what I was not understanding. And when I came to realize, wait a second, it's not that I'm just that smart that I decided to follow Jesus or that good of a person that I decided to follow Jesus, but I was spiritually dead. And the Holy Spirit's the one who stepped in and opened my eyes to the realities of who Jesus Christ is and gave me that regeneration and that new life. And with that, this eternal security that I have in him. So that's why I'm pretty passionate when it comes to the sealing of the Holy Spirit and our eternal security in Christ, because I spent, I was a believer, I was a believer in high school, but I was just confused about some things because I just didn't understand this. And just the level of peace and joy and really the glory you can give to God for your salvation just expands so much when you come to recognize the sovereign work of the Spirit in our lives. This is why the Bible can be so confident. Let me just read for you. We read Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 earlier. Let me read 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. 